All right. So uh, December 24th, when I was 19 years old, was my first Christmas Eve away from home. I just moved out a couple months earlier, just recently turned 19. I was real excited and kind of high on life about what that meant. But one of the things that living on your own for the first time means is that you don't have a lot to eat besides what you buy yourself, which is kind of a shocking revelation to most people who move out for the first time. You know? But I remember I was hungry. It was Christmas Eve. The next morning, my parents are picking me up, and we're going to go um, to Pine Top to where my grandma stayed, and we're going to spend Christmas Day there. And I remember kind of thinking, you know, it's, you know, it's 11 o'clock at night, so I'm going to do what every college student does. I'm going to eat a bunch of stuff I shouldn't eat. And so I was hungry. I went to open the fridge, open it up, and all we have is a half-drank bottle, gallon of milk and some Fruity Pebbles in the... Uh, in the cabinets, I'm going, all right, 11 p.m. cereal, whatever, I can do it. And so, but I look it up, and the milk is like three and a half weeks expired. And I'm going, you know what? You know, I'm invincible. I'm 19 years old. You know, it doesn't really matter. So I smell it. It smells fine. Like, okay, I'll have some milk. So anyway, three and a half hours later, I'm up um, seeing my Fruity Pebbles again. You know, that's kind of <laughs> how that went. You know, Merry Christmas, up all night, having a bad time. Uh, but what ended up happening is my stomach ended up hurting worse and worse and worse, and I'm, I've never had food poisoning before, you know, so I just thought, this is just how it is. I don't know what the problem is, you know, kind of like the, I deserve this, you know, this is, I made this bed, now I need to lie in it. So my parents came and picked me up, and I remember we're driving uh, to Pine Top, and we kind of end up getting about halfway to Apache Junction, and it's like, pull over, um, I need to keep doing what I've been doing all night, and I pull over, but it's like, and we jump out, and some stuff comes out of me, and but it's just like, a weird green color, you know, and to the point where you're like, that's not Fruity Pebbles, that's a problem, you know, and so <laughs> we end up going to the hospital, and I have appendicitis, and it's like real bad news, I have to have, have surgery, but I remember when I get in there, and, you know, the nurse is asking, like, on a scale of 1 to 10, how's your pain, and I'm like blacking in and out, and like shaking violently, scale 1 to 10, how's your pain, and I don't know a ton, but I just know I said some stuff to the nurse that I shouldn't say from the stage at a church, and it just didn't go very well, but they gave me something, and it took the edge off from like a 10 to like an 8, but then what happened is, like, all of a sudden my physical pain was less acute, but I started to have all this kind of, like, these uh, mental pain and mental questions, like, I ruined Christmas, this is my fault, this is expensive, this doesn't cost a lot of money, um, I'm going to have to have surgery, that's scary, I've never had surgery like this before. And so the now, now it's almost like the physical pain is just not terrible enough that now I have space to worry about all these other things. And so it's still, still not a positive experience. I'm still hurting really bad. But then the nurse comes by, how's your pain now? I said, still have it. It's like an eight. But then she gave me something else. And I don't know what happened, but my pain went to like negative five. You know, there's just, <laughs> have a holly jolly Christmas, no more problems. <laughs> there's nothing wrong. You know, things are pretty nice. I could get used to this, you know, happy Christmas to me. And, it, but it was interesting, like the different levels of the, the pain stuff, you know, one, one just took the edge off the physical pain, but one even kind of eliminated the emotional pain or the sense of worry or stress or anxiety that I was going to have. And I remember the nurse came back in and they're going to cut you like this and do this. And I'm like, sure, whatever. You know, like there's no, you know, man, who cares? You know, do it right now. I don't even care. I don't feel anything. And that kind of like that feeling of, um, then I remember thinking like, wow, this feels, this is so good. This must be why people become addicts. And then all of a sudden I got a little nervous, like, I should probably slow my roll on enjoying this because this is not necessarily a good thing that I'm really into whatever's happening. But it, just kind of recognizing the, the fact of there's the physical pain, but then there's like the emotional stressors that surround the physical pain and all the financial anxiety stuff. And the way in which that 
even substance can be a way of both escaping the physical pain, but also just ignoring or escaping the emotional pain. And I think that that's what Paul's getting at here in Ephesians 5. In verse 16, he says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine. That there's this really sober recognition of the days are evil, stuff goes poorly, things come at you, there's legitimate things to be nervous about, there's real things to be anxious about, there's real physical pain you're entering with the world, and Paul feels this need to kind of out of nowhere, it seems, warn people about their alcohol consumption. Nothing about this whole text has had anything to do with inebriation or sobriety or anything like that, but rather Paul goes, the days are evil, therefore do not get drunk with wine, that he's acknowledging the fact that there's this pain of life, and he's recognizing that one of the main ways that people love to deal with the pain of life, both physical and emotional, is by escaping that, by getting out of the body. And so Paul goes on to say, don't get drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit, such that there's an either-or thing happening here where you can either be filled with inebriating substance or you can be filled with the Spirit of God. Either you can choose to deal with your pain by escaping it through consumption or you can choose to deal with your pain by praying Now, I'm not saying there's not a legitimate role for um, especially people with chronic severe pain or even like pre-surgery anesthetic. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that all of us are tempted in one way or another to escape or anesthetize our physical and emotional pain, in particular our emotional pain, because the days are evil. And we don't always do it with alcohol. And my guess is actually probably a, a... a chunk of people in this room, maybe 15 to 40% based on the studies I read, um, actually do regularly escape emotional pain using alcohol. But all of us in this room, even if you're not doing it with wine, um, you're doing it somehow. I remember uh, I dated this girl in high school for like a week and a half, and here's how our relationship ended, was I was at a party and she was drunk. And I said, I thought you were a Christian, like, why are you getting slammed at a party? And she said, oh, well, this is beer. The Bible says don't get drunk on wine. It's not a problem. (laughs) I was like, oh, congratulations. You're a biblical scholar. You know, like, when's your book coming out? Uh, Anyway, we dated until I broke up with her the next day. I mean, we dated for a week and a half. What does that even mean? But anyway, point being is Paul isn't saying, like, don't get drunk with wine. Vodka's cool. That's not his point. His point is don't escape the world. Don't numb yourself up to the world that God created as an avoidant mechanism when God's called you to live into this world. And so the big idea that Paul has for us in this text is this. Um, God's will for you is sober, spirit-filled living. That's the idea. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. God's will for you is sober, spirit-filled living. And so what we're going to see is actually this can happen in two parts. The first one is debauchery, and the second one is sobriety. Except for I'm pretty sure that nobody really knows what debauchery means. You know, I had to look it up, which means that nobody knows what it means. That's, that's me just kind of... Uh, just who even knows what debauchery means? I asked a bunch of people and everybody gave me eight different definitions. And so I actually looked it up, and the best translation of debauchery is actually getting wasted. So I'm going to go with that. So um, spirit-filled living. So not getting wasted. Actually, the word debauchery um, comes from the root word meaning save 
or to like steward, and it, it says ah saving, so it's like literally wasting. So it's non-savedness or it's uh, non-recycling. So it's literally wasting. So when we talk about someone being wasted, they're literally like you're wasting your time. You know, there's they're wasting their they're wasting their time. You're wasting your time with them. They've wasted the day. So we're going to talk about getting wasted versus being sober, and the ways in which God calls us to live into those two realities, or actually to not live into one of those two realities and to live into the sober reality. So God wants us to be sober and spirit-filled, and we're going to flush that out this morning. Let me pray, and we'll keep going. God, thank you for my brothers and sisters in this room. I pray specifically for the people who are living with um, unresolved or unprocessed trauma in their life, grief or assault or otherwise, that they, as a way of surviving, have medicated themselves. I pray that you would um, help them feel seen by you, that you understand, but that you're also inviting them to do the work, whether it's through therapy or prayer or connection or otherwise, that you want us to be whole. I pray for all of us in this room that we'd be able to honestly recognize the ways in which we medicate or we escape or we inebriate ourselves as a way of avoiding what we're dealing with. And I hope that this morning that you will meet us such that we can be further filled with the Spirit um, even as a result of being here this morning. Amen. Amen. So the first thing I want to talk about is just the imagery of spirit or the imagery of the spirit because that's kind of a vague term and what that actually looks like and means. And so when you think about the word spirits and you think about like vodka or uh, whiskey, the ways that they're made and they're called spirits. And what does that mean? And the reason that those things are called spirits is because they would have um, like a, a sour batch or some type of um, alcoholic beverage like that's kind of like a a terrible beer, but what happens is you heat it up to the point that the alcohol vaporizes um, and becomes unseen and, and goes up through the thing, that, and then they have the still, so the, the, the distilled um, whiskey or vodka comes out on the other side. So there's something, but then it becomes invisible, and before you kind of understand chemistry, there's like this invisibility going on, and then it condenses, and it comes down, and it's this distilled or purified version of itself. And so the reason it's called spirits is kind of in one sense, it goes from being some Thing to kind of becoming a spirit and then coming down the other side. It's, it's spirited, it's uh, distilled, it's different. And so there's an unseenness to the production is one of the reasons why we call it spirit. Similarly, when you think about um, the biblical imagery of the Holy Spirit and the way the Spirit moves is there's this regular picture of what it is to have unseen things moving things. Um, that actually the word wind or breath and the word spirit are the same word in Greek. And the Bible all the time picks up on that imagery and talks about it. And it makes sense because if you're going to drive out and see a dust devil going across or you'd see the trees moving, you would say, those trees aren't moving themselves. Something's moving the tree and it's the wind. I don't see the wind, but I see it affecting and moving things. And it's similar for the Holy Spirit in our lives. I don't see the Holy Spirit moving you all, but I see you being moved by God's active upholding presence and developing maturity as you go about your lives. So spirit is in one sense of talking about the animating invisible force that gives life. However, in biblical imagery, the spirit is a person. He has a will and he has desires and he's the third person of the Trinity. But that, that idea of breath versus spirit or wind and spirit is regularly picked up on when we think about um, what it is to be filled with the spirit in the Bible. And so John, the author, talks about this. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with every 
everyone who is born of the Spirit. So he's saying, how come some people become Christians and some don't? Well, how come some trees move and some trees don't? It's the Spirit. It moves them. It causes them to do things they wouldn't have done by themselves. And so if you're a Christian, there's a sense in which, well, the Spirit of God blew in you, and there is nothing that you could really do about it, but all of a sudden you had a new heart and a new set of desires and beliefs. And so that's part of what it means to become a Christian, is the Spirit gives a new heart to who he wants. It blows all over the place. Similarly, Jesus picks up on this imagery when he says, Jesus breathed on him and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, such that the Spirit literally comes from Christ. The Spirit of Christ comes from Christ and is sent by Christ. And so God breathes onto the apostles and they receive the Holy Spirit. So that breath, wind, spirit imagery is an important part for us to make sense of what it is to be filled with the Spirit. So it's, it's the unseen force that causes things to move and take shape. So when we think about what this is talking about here, don't get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit, there's a sense in which we need to understand the fact that the Spirit is moving, but this drunkenness is moving in a different direction. And in particular here, I want to recognize the fact that what Paul's talking about here is literally don't become inebriated on alcohol, but in a greater sense, he's talking about something that could be called the spirit of the age. So if you think that there's two forces at work in the world at all times, the spirit of God and the spirit of the age, that is the dominant ways in which the people around us and the cultural norms are moving and shaping our thinking subconsciously. So in Ephesus, so track with me here, in Ephesus... There is a cult of Dionysius. That's a lowercase g god. It was this god, and the way that you worship Dionysius is by getting drunk with wine. Uh, Dionysius was the god of wine, but also the god of fertility and um, sexual parties. And so if you found it in yourself that you weren't fun at a party, if you were lame when it came to like hanging out with people, you could fill yourself with the spirit of Dionysius, and all of a sudden you were fun at parties. Or if you couldn't really... Uh, get up to the task of engaging with um, the kind of like abhorrent sexual practices of the people around you, if you got enough of the spirit of Dionysius in you, you could pretty much get away or do anything. And so what Paul's saying here is all these people, all these neighbors around you are filling themselves with the spirit of Dionysius, getting drunk on wine. But I want to tell you, don't get drunk on the spirit of that age. Rather, be drunk or filled with or moved by the Holy Spirit of God. And so the reality is, is that probably zero people in this room are tempted to like go and get full of the spirit of Dionysius in a practical sense. This is in Ephesus. This is in the first century. However, all of us are tempted to fill ourselves with these false spirits or these false attitudes or false dispositions that are given to us by the world all around us. So some of you, it might literally be alcohol. You're going, my life is hard. They're not going the way I want them to go. These kids won't stop stressing me out. Um, fill in the blank, whatever it is. Here's all these reasons that I... And so I want to avoid feeling those things rather than doing the hard work of like processing through them in prayer and in lament and bringing them to God or going to therapy. I'm going to avoid all of that. And instead, I'm just going to numb myself off to these things. And so... There's probably people in this room who need to just have a real face-to-face, honest-with-yourself realization that you have a drinking problem. Here's kind of one way of testing this. Does your wife think you have a drinking problem? Then you have one. Can you go multiple nights a week without having one or two drinks? Are you regularly turning to alcohol as a way of 
disaffecting yourself. Be honest. You might need to do some work and make some hard steps and make some hard confessions and get sober. It is God's will for you that you engage in sober, spirit-filled living, and there's an either-or here. But for a lot of people in this room, you may not be regularly tempted to go to alcohol to numb yourself out from your problems. For example, I found that I have a problem with Twitter, and here's what I mean by that, is when I'm stressed or feeling overwhelmed or feeling like a lot of people are depending on me for something or people are asking me things to do that I don't really want to do, one of the things I noticed over the past handful of weeks in particular is that I regularly go onto Twitter, not to see what the people I follow are saying, but I'll go to like the popular page where to see what all the popular people are saying. And one of the things I've noticed is that I uh, get really angry about what people are saying and doing, and then I get even more angry about what people are saying in response to what people are saying and doing. Because I go, everybody on the internet is an idiot. And everyone is reactive and unhealthy and everyone's stupid. And it feels really good to be angry and self-righteous to people you don't know. Because what I find out is if I'm all emotionally worked up about what other people are doing, then I'm not really emotionally present in my own problems. And it's a way of escaping my, my situation or my problems is by getting worked up about things that I can never do anything about because I have no responsibility for what they're doing. So I have deleted Twitter off my phone and a couple of guys in the office know like, hey, if I'm on Twitter, ask me how I'm doing because it's maybe a situation in which I'm avoiding some of my, my negative emotional feelings or having to like do those things. Other things you might do of getting drunk on spirit of the age um, is you might spend an inordinate amount of time uh, scrolling through Pinterest and obsessing about what your house could be. In this sense, you're drunk on a spirit of comparison. You're, you're inebriated, you're not clear thinking, you're unable to be grateful for what God has given you because you're constantly thinking about how things could be different. You might read People Magazine and hear about all these celebrities and all the dumb stuff they're doing, and you might feel like, oh, I'm better than they are, so I must be doing pretty well. You're drunk with the spirit of comparison. Maybe Instagram, there's this, so our world around us desperately wants us to be comparing ourselves to one another because the more we compare ourselves to one another, the more money we spend, the more the rich get richer and the poor stay poor. So if you find yourself constantly comparing yourself, you're drunk in the way that all the marketers want you to be so that you can spend more money and be wrapped up in the spirit of the age. You might be constantly one of those kind of people who just are projecting it. What's it going to be like when I retire? How quickly can I pay off my house? What, what's, it, what's life going to be like when I don't have any responsibility? And you, you fantasize about this future reality in which you won't have any problems and you're drunk with the spirit of laziness because you can't wait until you can be lazy. Similarly, when I talk to people who are battling um, sexual impulsive behavior, when they describe what's going on in their mind, when they give into these things, whether it's pornography or affairs, there's almost a sense in which um, there's a problem in their life and they don't want to feel it. And then there's like almost a drunken, inebriative effect to sexual desire to all of a sudden it's 50 minutes later and I've done something, what just happened? Drunk on a spirit of sexual promiscuity. It literally causes you to not clear think, think clearly. It's one of the things that, this doesn't remove any responsibility whatsoever, but we see the ways in which the messages in the world around us are shaping our thinking, and it causes us to, to be inebriated, to not be present, to avoid our problems, and to externalize all of our external situations. So I have to ask you, what are, what are some of the ways in which you get wasted 
or are debaucherous or inebriated, when you are feeling a sense of discontentment, when you are feeling um, a sense of these responsibilities are hard, when you're sensing this capacity of, I'd rather be doing anything but this, what are the things you go to to help you not feel as bad? Is it food? Is it gluttony? Is it sexuality? Is it money? Is it, like, one of the things I regularly see is that people are drunk with power. They love asserting their position. They love leading through intimidation or making people feel small. Maybe you're not powerful yet, but you can't wait till you're powerful so you can have people just submit to you. That's unhealthy. See, the path to repentance begins with being brutally honest with yourself about yourself. We cannot lie to ourselves. We have to really do work and say, what are these various cultural forces that I submit to and allow to shape my thinking as a way of avoiding my difficulties and a way of avoiding my pain? Because the way of God is not of avoidance but of dealing with it. The only way that we actually can deal with our grief and our unresolved trauma or a sense of um, unmet expectations is we have to be able to pray and lament and move towards God and recognize that God's will for us isn't that we feel nothing but rather that we feel things and come to him while we feel those things. So think through it. If you're a millennial like me, it probably has something to do with your smartphone scrolling mindlessly. If you're retired, how much cable news do you watch? Here's kind of one clear way of knowing whether you are drunk on a spirit of the age or not is you look at the fruit. So if you say things like dummycrats or republicans, you are drunk on cable news. If there's this like real othering of these other people and there's this real, those idiots are the problem, but somehow I am the, just be honest. What, examine the fruit. What are you drunk with? So and here's, here's the, great, the great irony that I see in this, and this is one of the reasons why I think the scriptures are so wise, is that Paul is saying here that rather than getting drunk or filled with wine, instead get drunk or filled by the Spirit, such that Paul is saying we should be drunk on the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, inebriated by the Spirit. And the irony there is that being drunk on the Spirit is actually the most sober you can actually be. That we were blind and now we see. The Spirit helps us see. That we were lost and now we're found. The Spirit gives us a sense of centeredness. That we were wandering, but now we've arrived. The Spirit helps us find our place. That we were far off, we've been brought near. The Spirit helps us find our belonging. That we were constantly misinterpreting the world around us through our flesh and our desires, but yet the Spirit helps us rightly see. It illuminates our heart. He moves into us and helps us see such that the most sober you will ever be is when you're filled with the Spirit. So being full of the Spirit is not like being impulsive and nuts and like yabbing on and on about stuff. Rather, being the Spirit is this sense of grounded, Christ-like love that we engage the people around us with. So be honest. Take an inventory. Write it down. Some of you might need to 
go to therapy and process your coping mechanisms. Some of you might need to come in for pastoral counsel and help and get help processing your coping mechanisms because the great and ultimate coping mechanism is not even necessarily a coping mechanism, but it's a person, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's with us by his spirit, and he's connected to us, and he's listening to us, and he understands us better than we understand ourselves, and he knows what we're going through better than we even know what we're going through. And so our capacity to be present to the people that God has placed us with and our capacity to rightly grieve our problems begin by attuning to the presence of the Holy Spirit who is with us, the author of our faith, the perfecter of our faith, the God of the universe who is over all and in all, but yet he's with us in personal and close. And so a lot of you have been coping very poorly for a very long time, probably because you're coping the same way your parents coped. And so it'll take some real soul searching, some real honesty about the ways in which God is inviting us to be present in our life, not to escape our life. This is the whole idea about wine. People ask all the time, can Christians drink, can Christians not drink? The question we need to ask is, God has given us creation to enjoy it, not to escape it. And so if you can have a glass of wine and enjoy creation, that's great. But if you can't have a glass of wine without it becoming escape, numbing, then maybe you shouldn't have any wine. That idea, that paradigm of enjoying versus escaping is a great way of processing through, am I trying to get away from something or am I with gratitude thanking God for something? Think about it, be honest. And we'll go from there. So being sober, let's think about what it means to be sober, clear thinking. Not necessarily just not drunk, but also fully present and clear thinking. So we talk about the being full with the Spirit as a way of being sober. It says be filled with the Spirit. It says addressing one another. So Paul says, so there's being drunk with wine, which is wastefulness or getting wasted, but be filled with the Spirit. And he gives us these five things or these five actions that describe what being filled with the Spirit is like. So being filled with the Spirit is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual Song. So the first one is this grouping, addressing, making, and singing. So um, dressing one another. So if you ever, this is kind of shocking. I always think about when I come to church that I'm going to sing to God, right? I'm going to come, I'm singing to God. But here Paul talks about addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Have you thought about how when you show up to sing, you're actually addressing the people in the room, that you're declaring the truth of who God is and what he's done and what he's doing in a way that encourages the people left and right of you? I, that's kind of a new way of thinking about this to me, that I both am making melody to the Lord in my heart, so I am singing to God from the heart, singing and making melody to the Lord through my heart, but I'm also addressing people left and right of me. Some of the most encouraging times I have in church is when the worship leader steps back and I can hear the congregation sing, and there's like a, that sense of we believe this together, that they believe it, I believe it, and we're, we're actually preaching to one another through our singing. And so sometimes people, particularly Bible traditions, think that, uh, well, you know, it's like there's pre-game, the sermon, and post-game. It's kind of how we view the church worship service. But that's really not the biblical way of thinking about it, but rather the singing and addressing to one another. You know, you might find people who sit in the lobby and come in because they don't like the music, uh, well, that's fine. Nobody asked you to like the music, but we did ask you to address one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. 
you may not like the, another thing I'm encouraged by is when I hear certain people go like, I don't really love the music, but they come and they participate anyway because they see the biblical responsibility to address one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. The mature Christians are easily edified and they don't need the music to be something to show up and obediently address one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. That's one of the things you miss out on when you watch from home if you're gone is you miss that addressing one another piece, that being here in the flesh, connected to one another so we can hear each other sing is a big part of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. The second one we get is actually um, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that's kind of increasingly common is you'll find out that even in secular people who don't believe in God, a way of managing uh, a sense of depression or anxiety is morning and evening writing down five things you're grateful for. That's kind of a fairly common practice in various forms of therapy, and a whole bunch of different secular authors that I've read all recommend practicing gratitude as a way of helping deal with some of your emotional stuff, because if you can notice the good things, it will help you recognize that there's not only bad things. And the thing that's ironic to me about that is if you don't believe in God, who are you being thankful to? Like, there's, there's thankful to myself, to the universe, to some out there but rather we're thankful to God the Father um, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're expressly giving thanks to this benevolent, generous God who gives us more than we deserve. In our capacity to notice and attend to and sense and record the active work of God all around us is an important part of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Because if you're not looking for the work of the Spirit in the people around you, or if you're not looking for the work of the Spirit in your own life, you probably won't see it. We tend to see what we're looking for. So some of us probably need to just develop a very real habit of attending to the work of the Spirit in our lives so that we can journal out and give thanks for these various things that God is doing around us. Because when we begin to notice the grace of God at work around us, it is legitimately encouraging. And it's a discipline that many of us don't have. And so we just, it's always easy to notice when things aren't right. But when things are right, you take it for granted. It's like food every time, you know. When the food tastes like it's supposed to taste, well, great. When the food tastes bad, it's waiter, you know. (laughs) How much time do you spend noticing the active blessing God who's at work in the people around you in your life? And the third one that we get here is actually submitting. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This, what I'm, I'm going to call this a spirit of deference. So out of fear, so that word reverence is actually phobia. Out of fear for Christ, I submit to one another. Because when I see people as image bearers of God, I should take them seriously. When I see every individual as a revelation of God, that God has put something in himself in that person... I cannot dehumanize that person and minimize them or push them aside. Rather, I have to be able to meet every person and recognize the fact that this person is showing me something about God, that this person is a revelation of God to me. And so that produces a slowness or a deference or a curiosity that I should have to the people I interact with. I'm not dismissing or moving by or even whatever, but imagine trying to intimidate or belittle or make someone feel small who is made in the image of God. It's insane. But yet we do it all the time. Like I said, some of you who are drunk on power refuse to obey this verse. You like making your wife feel small by making her walk on eggshells all the time. You like that your kids are afraid of you 
You like that the people at work are nervous about what type of mood you're going to be in today because you like making people feel small. And if that's you, you do not fear the Lord and you're in danger. In the brief time that I've been overseeing counseling here, I sit with people who are married to these people who refuse to have a spirit of deference and instead are this king of the castle mentality in their homes. Evil. Satan uses his power to oppress. God uses his power to serve and elevate. If you're married to that type of person or you are that type of person, either way, we want to help you. But recognize that if, whether you're the CEO, the head of the house, the oldest child, regardless of your role or the authority that comes with your role, you are required to have a spirit of deference to the people that God has put in your life. Are people afraid of you? Repent. Are people nervous because you might explode at any moment? Is there, well, when dad's show is on and he's had two beers, don't come close? The wrath of God burns against men who use their power to make people afraid of them. I think some people need to wrestle with that and sit with that. So the beauty of this passage, these, these three um, couplings, addressing, singing, making, thanksgiving, and submitting, actually address much of what it is to be a whole person. When we think about the ways in which these things work, that he's addressing, singing, making, which is an emotive thing, that I, with the joy of my heart from the inside out, I want to be able to joyfully and express with a degree of emotion my affection for God and the people that God has placed around me. So I should have and pursue an emotional encounter with God an emotional sense of contact with the Lord that I should have regular senses in which I'm moving with God relationally in an emotive sense. But then also, we don't just turn off our emotions and turn on to our intellect or turn off our intellect and turn on to our emotions, but rather, Thanksgiving explicitly addresses the mind that I am taking strategic inventory and noticing and taking note of and writing down and giving thanks for real active things of God in my life. So there's both an emotional and a rational. And the third one is relational, the ways in which we are practicing submitting to one another and this is one of the reasons why we have like men's and women's studies is that we get people in a circle and we they have to practice submitting to one another that's one of the reasons why we have RCs we get people in a household and they have to practice submitting to one another listening caring being concerned um, being curious and so if you're going man I'm bad at this or even I'm good at this and I want to get better at it or if you're just generally saying I need to walk out submitting to one another I want you to sign up for one of our men's and women's studies there's information about them in the program both men and women this semester are studying Genesis 1 through 11 so you and husband and wife could go through it together and talk about it afterwards or you could just hang out with the women at your table either way you need to walk in this kind of relational practice of submitting to God and to one another together and so this three strands thing, a lot of people ask, like, well, is this what being filled with the Spirit looks like, or is this how you get filled with the Spirit? So is this a prescription saying, okay, you want to be filled with the Spirit, give yourself to these five things, or is it, do you want to know if you're filled with the Spirit, see if you have these five things? And the answer is yes, it's both and. It's kind of like if you asked, what's a healthy marriage? Well, there's regular sexual connection, regular communication, regular um, date nights, a capacity to talk about hard things. There's a partnership, but there's also a sense of um, a connectedness in these different ways. And so, well, is that what a healthy marriage looks like, or is that how you get a healthy marriage? Well, the answer is 
Yes, it's both of those things. You have to work it out. There's a responsibility to do stuff, but then there's also the fruit that it produces, and it's similar with the Spirit-filled life. Is it being filled with the Spirit that causes you to sing, or is it singing that causes you to be filled with the Spirit? And I would say it's both and. There's a responsibility and a pragmatics to this thing. And this is the most helpful metaphor for this that I think about when we talk about um, what it is to be filled with the Spirit, that we cannot control the Spirit of God. So that's kind of the first place. He blows where he wants. He moves how he wants. None of us can ever take any credit whatsoever, period, for either our salvation or our progressing holiness. Only the Spirit saves and only the Spirit makes us holy. However, there's a reality to our responsibility. So imagine um, that you're sailing and your sails are down and the wind blows. Do you go anywhere? Maybe, but not really. (laughs) But we as people have a responsibility to raise our sails, which is work, such that those sails can be filled with wind and move. And so these are some of the sail-filling exercises that we can engage in and practice. That sometimes I come to church on Sundays and I'm just not feeling it. I'm not into it. I'm tired. I went to bed too late. I'm sick of whatever. (laughs) And so I prayerfully say, I'm just going to sing and ask the Spirit to move in my heart. And the Spirit meets me there. So it's not that the feeling precedes the action, but sometimes the action precedes the feeling. And so even if you have two boats, and some of you may be there right now, you have these two boats that haven't moved in a long time. You're kind of dead in the water. The wind's not moving. One person raises the sails every single day, and still the wind doesn't blow. The other person's just bitter and gives up and just sits there. But one person keeps raising the sails, keeps praying for the wind to blow, and eventually the wind blows and the person who's been raising their sails moves and the person who's bitter and given up just sits there. You know, which one of those people had faith? But even that sailor who's moving now cannot take responsibility for that because the Spirit's who moves them. And so you can't say, I'm filled with the Spirit because of what I did, but we can say, I have a responsibility to posture myself in such a way that when the Spirit moves, I'm ready to listen. That when the Spirit moves, I'm ready to obey. When the Spirit moves, I can sense it. And so if you just stay home and say, the Spirit's not going to blow today, you miss the opportunity to worship with God's people. And so these spiritual disciplines, these practices of faith, are both the way what being filled with the Spirit looks like and how we pursue and get and are full of the Holy Spirit. And so we need to practice and press in and take responsibility for posturing ourselves, recognizing the fact that we can't actually produce anything on our own. And this is sobriety, clear thinking, the capacity to be connected to God and seeing the world as he sees it. That is the ultimate sobriety. So this is God's will for us, that we be sober and spirit-filled. And one of the things we're going to do these next couple weeks as we progress through this spirit-filled life mini-series we have going on is we're going to do our response time a little different. I just really want to emphasize, in particular, the singing portion. Usually in our response times, we talk about giving, Um, singing, and then we spend like 90% explaining communion. And so we're still going to take communion, but I really want us to focus in particular on kind of like if I'm going to do 20% um, communion and giving, but 80% singing. The fact that, yes, we're about to take communion, 
And the only reason you have any capacity to even press into any of this is the grace of God, which is made possible by the life, death, and resurrection of the Son on your behalf. And the elements that we take, his body and his blood, remind us of the fact that no matter how bad we have failed, we can get back on the horse and try again. And no matter how bad we have failed, God's love is set on us and we cannot avoid it. And so we're going to take these elements as a way of reminding ourselves of the security of the gospel. If you're not a Christian, please let the elements pass you by. These are for people who have given themselves to Christ in faith and repentance. And you're going to have an opportunity to give by texting that number on the screen or by dropping the giving stations in the back. But more than that, I want us to really focus and press into the fact that we can address one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And even in doing that, we build one another up in the faith that you may sing not just for your sake, but for the sake of the person sitting next to you. You may sing with a full-throated, excited voice, even though you may not totally be feeling it at the moment, but in faith acting, saying, Holy Spirit, please instore and enrich my heart so that I can engage with you both emotionally, rationally, and relationally. And really walking into God's presence with open hands saying, meet me here. And so I want us to, as a church, to be really good at singing loud for both our sake and the sake of our neighbors. Because I'm encouraged when you worship God and you're encouraged when I worship God and we partner in this together. And so ushers are gonna come down and I'm gonna pray and you can take the elements whenever you're ready, but I want us to really consciously press into being a singing, praising congregation. Let me pray for us. Father, you are good to us and you are making us new. I pray that we would be conscious of the ways in which we are um, wasting ourselves by being uh, escapists rather than enjoyers of your creation. I pray that we would be able to deal honestly with the pain of our life rather than just escape the pain of our life. That you'd help us take steps of faith to begin to process through the difficult things you're calling us to do. And God, I do pray that we would have more of you than these next couple moments, both in the communion elements and in our singing, that you will meet with us and encourage us and build us up, that we can walk out of here an energized people by the power of your spirit. Amen.